Podcast, episode 14, Deep Armageddon Edition, with your host, Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at The Dissolve. This week, we preview the upcoming Oscars in our own special way by talking about our hopes and dreams for the ceremony, however unlikely those are to be fulfilled. In honor of Grand Piano, a strange little movie that maybe doesn't deserve high honors, we discuss the art of the claustrophobia film. We return to our double vision game, making contestants distinguish between the giant meteor movies of 1998, then wrap with our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. podcast hits the site, the 86th Academy Awards will be just two days away, and we'll all be gearing up to see how we did in our respective Oscar pools. But everyone knows you can't win an Oscar prediction contest by voting with your heart. Oscar pool winners, the ones who cast emotions aside and vote like soulless automatons, who see Crash winning Best Picture as just another check mark on the final tally of correct answers. But we here at The Dissolve sometimes get a little invested in the films we'd like to see honored and recognized, and we can't entirely let go of our Oscar dreams. So we're going to get all those dreams off our chest right now in hopes that we can watch the ceremonies on Sunday without throwing our TVs out the window like Johnny in the room. Here to express their hopes for this year's Oscars, no matter how unlikely those dreams are to come true, are... Uh, Scott Tobias. And Nathan Raven. And via Skype, we're pleased to welcome Jen Cheney, the film writer behind our Honorable Mentions column, which has been looking at some of the likely winners and losers in this year's Oscars. Jen, thanks for stopping by. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's start with you, Jen. What, uh, what are you hoping to see on Sunday? What are you hoping happens? Oh, gosh. I have a long list of things that I am hoping happen. Uh, so I'll start with one, which is highly unlikely, but since we're, you know, pie in the skying, what the heck, I would love to see a tie for Best Picture. which given the way that they decide best picture seems statistically impossible. Uh, But, you know, the fact that the producers guild had a tie, which almost never happens, planted that idea in my mind. Um, And it would, you know, it would get us past this whole idea of, are people going to vote for gravity? Are they going to vote for 12 years a slave? And maybe both of them could win. And and it could be a triumph of technological marvels and a triumph of a really, you know, amazing moving film about slavery. That, of course, leaves out American Hustle, but I would want to leave out American Hustle <laughs> because I don't think it deserves to win Best Picture. So that's one thing that I'm kind of hoping for, but, you know, I I don't think that it's going to happen. Well, there's going to be a lot, I think, on this segment that we don't think is going to happen. This is this is about okay, what we good. want. And uh, <laughs> I, I admit that that's a big ask, I mean, uh, just given the way the votes are tabulated. But, I, I mean, it's certainly an interesting thought. It kind of goes against the idea of uh, of competition, Right you now, but so is having ten nominees. So you know what the heck? Let's just let's just make two best pictures if we're going to have eight million nominees. So you want to you basically want to live in a world where we could admit that both oranges and apples are delicious, <laughs> and one of them does not have to be strictly better than the other. Yes, I believe we do live in that world. I and, can get and, uh, behind that all the way. Everybody gets a ribbon, <laughs> just like. It's just, <laughs> well, I think also. Right. I mean, it's clear also just that uh, one work of art is clearly superior to all the other works of art, in and consequently, that one work of art that's superior to all the other works of art should win. That's the essence of art. So he's you you're, know you're being, you're, he's being sarcastic, but I, <laughs> I sincerely believe that to be the to be the case, and would, you, and would, hap- would happily case? rank uh, rank the films uh, yeah. <laughs> according to my, in order of preference. Okay, well, what's on your order of preference, Scott? What well, do you want to see? Well, happen? I mean, first of all, semi joke answer. I, I'd, I'd like to see uh, Jackass presents Bad Grandpa win for <laughs> best makeup. Uh, just because I want to, I want to see a Jackass film to be described as Oscar-winning. Um, but um, but I have some that are a little bit more plausible. Uh, one I'd really like to see, I'd like to see Leonardo DiCaprio uh, win for The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, oh, I th- interesting. I, you know, watching that film again, I think it might be his best performance. It's 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 charismatic. It's ferocious. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think he kind of is. He plays somebody who sort of embodies the venality of Wall Street, or in this case, sort of off, off, off Wall Street. But also kind of gives you a sense of its of its spoils and allures. I mean, I just I think it's a great performance, and uh, I, you know, and he, of course he hasn't won. He's won before, right? Tasha, you enjoyed no. that film. She's, She's giving me yeah, a look. I, I love that film so. You no, enjoyed I'm, Wolf of Wall. She doesn't like that film, but I but. feel that that work of art deserves to be elevated above all the other works. I of will art. only back your play on this, Scott. If the uh, the nomination clip that they use is him flopping out of the uh, the country club on ludes. <laughs> that's fine by me. It's the scene of the year, in my opinion. <laughs> okay, we're we're both behind that, except for me because I'm not. Nathan, what do you what do you think? Uh, I'm going to uh, join Scott and be super super sincere and just say that I want a tribute to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hmm. Uh, hmm. That is worthy of him. I think we're all just kind of mourning and, and grieving. And, and wait, was the, would he would he qualify for the um, 
whatever. Are you, are you <laughs> in memoriam? <laughs> right, 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 right. Like how, 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 how does that work? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He will be in the in memoriam. It's a question of whether they'll highlight him in some other way. And a lot of times they're a little bit loath to do that because they try to, you know, not spotlight somebody which somehow would diminish other people's contributions. Um, but I, but I agree. I feel like, yeah. gosh, I would love to see a, a salute to him. Oh, he's so worthy of it. I mean, even if it does, you know, diminish other people, like he deserves to be revered and, and celebrated, you know, and I think that could be just this wonderful cathartic communal experience mm-hmm. that, you know, Oscars are at best uh, and generally are not. Wow. I think that, I think his name will be evoked constantly throughout the ceremony yeah, and like, if, so, if yeah. not officially i'm certainly officially in, in memoriam but beyond that is what you're kind of looking for oh very much so yeah and i think that's something that would lend an element of, of genuine emotion uh, to the academy mm-hmm. awards as to the pandering horseshit uh <laughs> that uh, tends to tends to be the, the predominant emotional tenor of of the uh the ceremonies oh that's just it i have a hard time seeing an odd like what the oscar ceremonies have become i have a hard time visualizing something that is actually that honest and that emotional i like i can see them doing it in just a, a hundred different like stiff self-serving uncomfortable a dance tribute to the uh, films a, of oh, philip yeah. seymour dance Hoffman. tribute like, yeah an editing tribute an editing tribute to the films of seymour no uh, mostly I here's them, kesha with a tribute like, to the films <laughs> of philip seymour Hoffman. just like bringing people out on stage for like that the thing that they did the for a few years where they had uh, individual people come out and, and heavily compliment the uh, oscar nominees like can <laughs> oh, you God. you can see yeah. them doing that with with Phil Seymour Hoffman uh, yeah and in fact you know at the BAFTAs uh the other night when Kate Blanchett won she made a point in her speech of dedicating her award to Philip Seymour Hoffman which I suspect if she wins the Oscar she'll do the same thing again um one because I do I believe she sincerely um you know wants to dedicate it to him but to be a little more cynical it's also a, a really convenient way for her to deflect from all the Woody Allen stuff she did not mention his name at all in her speech at the BAFTAs so um by you know, putting the emphasis on on honoring um, her friend, uh, that also kind of helps deal with that issue for her too. Well, that's a really good point, and uh, it does sort of get her out of a bunch of controversy. Uh, what yeah. else? What else, Jen? What's on your list? Uh, boy, um, yeah, it, it gets even stupider from where I started. <laughs> um, you know, Scott already mentioned DiCaprio, and actually, that was on my list too. That I actually want him to win, even though I wrote an entire column about how he will not. Uh, and if he wins, that would completely make me look like a fool. But I don't care because. I agree. I thought that was an amazing performance. Well, that, was, that just, was my secondary motivation, by the way. Just, I would, to make just, me look like an yeah, idiot. Yeah. Yeah, I would just much. like to see something nice happen for Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> he seems to have had a really He's difficult a lives. Life. Be nice to see, you know, just kind of something go his way for once. <laughs> uh, another thing that I actually would like uh, that is never going to happen is for Oscar Isaac, Justin Timberlake, and Adam Driver to perform Please, Mr. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um which clearly can't occur because it was deemed ineligible for even being considered as a best song nominee. Uh, and therefore I doubt that they would bother to perform it, but I, I would love to see that. I just want to see Adam driver doing, Oh, Oh, <laughs> I was really looking forward to that. And I'm so bummed. It's not in the, in the nominees list. I, I think the world cannot get enough of Adam Driver doing uh oh. It's it's just <laughs> such a great like the the camera comes back at him over and over doing that for really good reason. I can't get enough of Adam Driver. I just I just want to see him in everything. I think he's, he's amazing. Um, I have some fairly I have some plausible things. Oh, pie, pie, yeah, how exciting. pie Let's in the sky. That. Not even pie in the sky. Um, I'd like to see the act of killing win best documentary. I think oh, sure. you'd probably I'll consider it a favorite. But consider this, um, you know. Oscars in the past in this category were extremely conservative. I mean, it took a very long time for Errol Morris, for example, to get uh, to get even nominated, let alone win. And um, and uh, things have changed, um, uh, you know. And of course, Errol Morris actually is, is an executive producer on the Act of Killing. Uh, I just think it's a it's a, it's a worthy film, um, and uh, you know, I think it stands a chance now where it didn't in the past. Um, uh, another one, another one that again would probably be the favorite um, is uh, the Great Beauty uh, for best foreign language film. Uh, this is a film by uh, Paolo Sorrentino that I like very much, um, and it's kind of a, a great story that people haven't talked that much about uh, recently. I mean, it's it's collected some awards, but it's actually stayed in theaters for quite a long time, which which for our foreign films. Period just hasn't been happening lately. I mean, you can think of Blue is the Warmest Color was around for quite a while, but The Great Beauty is still at Music Box, for example, here in Chicago, and it's been there for months. Um, and it's just a big, sumptuous vision uh, of the kind that people feel compelled to see 
uh, on the big screen, and I, I would like to see some acknowledgement of that. And it has a, it has a, the, you know, the the movie, you know, consciously evokes other big Italian visions like like La Dolce Vita, and I just I would love to see uh, that tradition kind of honored uh, with an award. You know, I, I joke about voting your heart in Oscar polls, but I don't feel a whole lot of like personal poll this year in terms of mm-hmm. stuff I'm really rooting for. The act of killing is is the only thing that just I I want that to win the award because I want everybody to see that movie. It is such a spectacular and unusual thing, and it just it says more about humanity I think than than any other film I saw this year. Period. Nathan, do you have anything on your plausibles list? <laughs> I do not have a whole lot on my uh, plausibles list. I too would love to see uh, the act of killing uh, win. I think it probably will not. I feel like. <laughs> Um, probably the winner in that category is going to be like the movie that your six-year-old uncle has seen. Uh, and in that case, I think it's probably going to be 20 uh, Feet from Stardom, which is a nice movie as opposed to a movie that makes you feel terrible about humanity, which is uh, part of the brilliance of uh, The Art of Killing. Um, to go back to um, an earlier point, um, and this is an impossible point, I would love for Inside Lewin Davis to triumph as a write-in. Uh, I felt like it was such a, <laughs> such a, and of course that's not something that ever happens. I think you have to go back to like, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream and cinematography, like 1930 uh, for the last write-in candidate. But it's just such a wonderful film and so beloved. And it seems like all of the world recognized, other than the Academy, what it, what, uh, what an so injustice expect, it was. So you're expecting the Academy, which did not recognize it in the nomination phase, to, yes. to, to recognize it in exactly. the writing phase. And again, we're pie in the sky here. Oh, sure. uh, kind of, kind so of to I wake would, up from the drunken, drunken stupor in which they put their preliminary votes in and realize, how could we have overlooked this? I think, I think, Are you I talking think, specifically like Best Picture or like I a think sweep? Best Picture would be good. A sweep would be delightful. Best Song. Uh, these are all, uh, I mean, I think it's probably going to win uh, Cinematography just as kind of the consolation prize. I was kind of like, I don't agree with that. No, I don't think so. I don't agree with that at all. I think think Gravity gravity is going to win best. I should point out that I'm often wrong as well. (laughs) Uh, Jen, do you have anything on your plausibles list? Uh, Well, not a lot of plausibles, although I will say that um, I really do want her to win something. And I think the the category that it has the best chance in is probably best original screenplay. Um, That doesn't seem out of the realm for it to be recognized in that category. And, um, you know, I, I... it was just a very inventive story. It, to me, uh, it, it that is the definition of original in a lot of ways, um, even though it does harken back to other stories about, you know, technology. Um, but I thought the way that Spike Jones presented that story was just, you know, very much signature him um, and just really provocative and interesting and a movie that, you know, I know all of you and many people have had weeks worth of conversation about since, it, since they saw it. So um, I would love to see that one original screenplay. And I don't think that's, you know, I think that's a real possibility. Well, that's also been a category where the Oscars have sort of rewarded more offbeat stuff too, right? It's kind of the your movie was too smart for us category. Like this was really, really clever, but uh, it's it's complicated and makes our scratch uh, makes us scratch our heads. Yeah, no, totally. It's like this is a movie that uh, twenty years from now we'll all realize was the best movie uh, really of this great. year, but it's going to take us two decades. But it's like where Charlie uh, Kaufman and a lot of Tarantino things got 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 a nod. I think I think right. it's a good. He has a good chance. Very good. Chance. Well, we could probably mm-hmm. sit here all day talking about what, what we'd like to see, but we want to keep this podcast down to being shorter than the Oscar ceremonies themselves. <laughs> so let's do, do a quick blitz. Scott, tell us tell us the rest of yours. Uh, I'd like to see the Grandmaster win for cinematography, uh, despite uh, Roger Deakins being nominated. Um, uh, Deakins should win for something, uh, maybe not Prisoners. I would have liked to have seen him win for Skyfall the year before, but uh, the Grandmaster is one of those movies every shot. You can hang on your wall, uh, but it's it's uh, also it's one of those period pieces that you know it's sumptuously photographed, but it's also rendered in a very dynamic, expressive way. And I think I think the problem with a lot of historical pieces that tend to win best cinematography is that is that they're kind of stayed. Uh, think of memoirs for a geisha, memoirs of a geisha, should I say? Um, uh, I don't know if that won anything, but I just that's just my go-to films for just boring, decorous <laughs> crap. Um, and uh, and as far as like the ceremony itself, I feel like we all just need to reconcile ourselves to the reality that the, the, the that the Oscars are what the Oscars are, and and all these awards must be given out, and the show is going to be kind of long and boring, and just like let's 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 live with that and try to and try to judge the show on 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 its own on its own kind of screwed up terms. 
you know, I'm fine with that. I if I had one one really petty Oscar wish, it would be that nobody makes a boy the ceremony is yep. long joke yeah. because that yeah. shit was old in the 1970s when Carson was doing it, and it's just it's so tired. Nathan, uh, let's get through yours. What do you what do you have? Uh, sure, actually, this kind of uh, plays into the last point, uh, which is let's go the opposite fucking way. Uh, I would love for the ghost of Alan Carr, uh, the man who put together the Snow White, Rob Lowe, <laughs> uh, young Hollywood uh, shit show Oscars. I would love for like the ghost of him to take over and just let's push it and let's make this the most excessive, the tackiest, most out there and ridiculous uh, Academy Awards ever. Like it's never going to be that uh, tasteful. It's never going to be that respectable. Let's just embrace the cheese. I think that would be amazing. Uh, I think it'd be great if they could bring in John Hodgman as an announcer. Um, I, I just wish it had more personality. It wasn't so generic and predictable. And I think at some point in the evening, they should replace Jack Nicholson with a scarecrow with sunglasses. <laughs> Uh, just to see if anybody notices. They can still cut to like the reaction shot anytime anybody does something, but at some point somebody will notice that it's not him. It's just a scarecrow. So I think that would be fun ways to kind of mix up the Oscars in 2014. I had that too, Nathan. I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm down with all that. All right, Jen, take us home. All right, I have a couple of things. One is, and this is a sort of a general wish, but I'm really wishing for some weirdness, um, which is a, a difficult thing for anybody to plan for. But my favorite semi-recent Academy Award ceremony. It's not that recent anymore, but it's uh, was in 2003 when just all kinds of weird stuff happened. Michael Moore got on stage and he got booed by Teamsters and Roman Polanski won and, you know, no one was expecting that or at least I wasn't. Uh, and then Adrian Brody won and he just randomly, you know, tongue-kissed Halle Berry. I mean, there were just all these things that happened that um, made it really exciting and interesting. You know, I would even throw back farther and say, you know, I want somebody to do what Trey Parker and Matt Stone did and show up dressed as uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Jennifer Lopez. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that the Oscars needs more of. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping for some weirdness, some unexpectedness, some surprises, um, because with award season, you know, the conversation starting so early, it just feels like such a, a foregone conclusion by the time we get to the Oscars that uh, it, it just it just feels like we're going through the motions sometimes. And that adds to the sense that, oh, my gosh, this is too long. This is too boring um, because we've been talking about it for so long. Uh, and then the other thing that I would like, and this is less about the Oscars than it is about the pre-show. And I realize I'm probably hanging myself out alone in saying that I watch E! before the Academy Awards starts. But oh, we all do. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. OK, Guilty thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for making me feel better. Even if you're lying, thank you. No, we do. <laughs> I really want Jennifer Lawrence to destroy E's Manny Cam. <laughs> because, um, you know, last year, I think she did something kind of funny in the Manny Cam uh, at the Emmys this year. Um, I forget who it was. Somebody gave the finger in the Manny Cam. You know, we're just a couple heartbeats away from just getting like a, an axe of some kind and just beating it to death. And, and that's what I really, I think Jennifer Lawrence is a good candidate to do that kind of thing. And I'd like to watch that on live television. Could she nice. maybe just claw it apart with her razor sharp nails? You, you, know, who's, you know who's a better candidate for that? Uh, June Squibb. <laughs> I, I, uh, on a similar she, note, I would like to see uh, at least one streaker. Uh, at this year's oh, Academy yeah. Award ceremony. Wow. It's been, you know, since the 70s. And I think kind of streaking is coming back. I, I want it to happen this year. Well, let's all hope that that happens. But I'm voting for the, the Manny Camp thing. Myself. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a good one. Scott, Nathan, thanks for talking with us. Uh, Thank thanks you. for having us. And Jen, thanks for calling in. Where can we find more of your work outside the uh, the pages of the Dissolve? Oh, gosh, all kinds of different places. Um, Vulture, The Washington Post, Salon. Um, but the easiest thing to do is probably just to follow me on Twitter. Uh, and my Twitter is Chaney J. Well, we will be sure to hit you up there whether or not somebody takes apart the uh, the manicam with their claws, but we will <laughs> all be hoping. Thanks so much, guys. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you. Mid-February saw the VOD release of the strange thriller Grand Piano, starring Elijah Wood as a concert pianist making his big, tense comeback under the gun. Literally, since a handwritten note in his score promises that an unseen sniper will shoot him if he misses a single note. Also new in theaters, Nonstop, starring Liam Neeson as an air marshal dealing with the hijacking of his aircraft. Both films fit within an occasionally exploited subgenre, the claustrophobia movie, where characters are stuck in a dangerous location or situation, and the film's primary focus is on their attempts to escape or survive. Once we started talking about claustrophobia movies, unfortunately, we got trapped within this topic, and the only way to get out of it is to discuss our way through the genre until we can find a way out. Here to help me navigate this suffocating maze of similar movies are... Keith Phipps. Nathan Raven. Scott Tobias. 
Get me out of here, Tasha. Get me out of here. <laughs> are you feeling feeling the pressure? Already. We are all stuck together in a small white room. It is possible that the walls are closing in. So part of kind of defining our terms here, uh, just because a movie is set in a single location or a character is stuck in a place doesn't necessarily make it a claustrophobia movie. I think about something like Labyrinth or, or Die Hard, where the character is stuck in a place and trying to get out, but neither of those movies really focus on claustrophobia per, per se. Scott, do you have a theory about what makes a good claustrophobia movie? Uh, discipline, I think. Uh, you know, something like a movie like Phone Booth, which is a movie I, I don't like and I feel like cheats on its premise, uh, does not get any points for me for, for claustrophobia. I mean, you obviously, in a movie like Buried, for example, you have to find some cheats here and there. But, but uh, the two movies that really kind of come to mind as, as prime examples of how to do this right are uh, Das Boot. Uh, which is uh, set in a submarine, which is, I think is the perfect setting for... Uh, Dust Boot, I think, is the perfect vessel, I should say, for a, for a single-setting movie because it's, it's literally a pressure cooker. The, 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 the further down... Uh, this is the way water works. The further down you go into the deep... The more, pr- literally, the more pressure is put on you, and and and, uh, and what could I'm be more, what could be more dramatic than that? And then I guess the other one for me would be Twelve Angry Men, uh, which is a, you know, I think you could say what it's 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 stagey, I suppose, but the way the way Sidney Lumet realizes it, um, you know, it's a it's a bunch of guys in this room, it's hot, and and it's the film really emphasizes how hot it is, and and they really and uh, they all want to go. And, the, and Henry Fonda is there kind of, kind of trying to, you know, work, find some sort of justice in this, in this scenario. And, uh, and you can really, in both situations, both Das Boot and 12 Angry Men, it, it, it affects you physically being in that space. And the fact that the filmmakers do not leave that space um, uh, is critical to that feeling, I think. Oh, sure. I mean, there's, there's kind of the no exit aspect to a good claustrophobia film where hell is other people. I, part of the problem in Das Boot in, you know, is the fact that they're, they're being bombed and they're afraid of dying at any moment. But part of the problem with any claustrophobia movie that involves multiple cast members, you know, basically that isn't buried, is that sense of, of being stuck with other people who are just making the situation worse. Nathan, what do you think? What makes a good claustrophobia movie? Uh, I totally agree with, uh, with Scott. Uh, you know, I feel like, yeah, there are so many that are cheats, even like with the grand piano, it's, you have these claustrophobia movies and they're looking for the first possible opportunity to expand the universe, to open things up, you know, cause it's kind of awful, <laughs> that kind of intensity, it's kind of unbearable. And I'm actually a little claustrophobic myself and I find myself kind of, uh, steering clear of these movies. I wonder if something like the descent, uh, would qualify because oh, there yes. you have, you know, underground I think it pitch black I think would be another um, sort of exploration of that of the darkness and how you kind of combine the the darkness with claustrophobia and you come up with something that can be really really horrifying and, and what Scott was kind of talking about like on a very visceral primal get me the fuck out of this movie uh, sort of way which is certainly how I felt uh, during the descent I mean, not to veer immediately away from from what we define, but I mean, I think I think Lifeboat is an example of a film that, that's even though in the wide open spaces is claustrophobic. And, and I wonder if if we want to talk about Rear Window as one of these as well, because mm, yeah. you know, there's that sense of confinement and, and you can't escape. And he has a whole world to look out on and, and nothing he can do about it, too. I mean, I think there's a little bit of that uh, with that as well. And it kind of also as with so much of Rear Window mirrors the experience of watching a film, too, where where you are you know, sitting still and powerless to do anything about what, what, what you're watching. Wow, I had Lifeboat on my list, but I didn't, hadn't even thought about Rear Window. And I think that's a great example of a film where, like, his, the sort of the space that he's in is very large, but he's, he's trapped within a situation more so. I mean, kind of what's come to define the claustrophobia movie is something more like Buried, where you have such a limited space and such a limited situation that it dictates your story telling it dictates your camera movement it dictates every aspect of the film and there have been a bunch of those lately uh, with things like you know atm Um, (laughs) which i haven't seen totally talk about atm if you want i hear that that's a terrific movie what do you think so good so good they're trapped in an atm kiosk and there's a guy outside (laughs) who's like a murderer and they think they they really they're incredibly stupid. Sarcasm and, doesn't always translate. On podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, better better in part podcasts than print. Uh, I think, but uh, but I, I, to well, me, on the I, podcast everybody can't see that you're making uh, finger quotes around every uh, single okay. word you're saying. No, I guess not. Uh, to me, though, one of the keys too is is I think 
filmmaking skill. Yeah. I mean, you really have to, um, you know, because that requires that the, those limitations require a lot of invention from a filmmaking standpoint in order to make it cinematic rather than it seeming like a, a one-act play. Uh, and the example I always kind of turn to is this movie, What Happened Was, oh, yeah. uh, which is the the first, which Tom Noonan, which people know who as a character actor, very tall character actor uh, from... Uh, the Tooth Fairy, maybe his the best The Tooth Fairy in Manhunter. Man uh, he's been a lot of other things too, uh, but um, this was his directorial debut. It won, it won Sundance back in 93, but disappeared, resurfaced uh, recently on streaming. Uh, Sam Adams wrote about it for us. But uh, basically, it was just, it's just about a first date, you know, and it, and it gets all, and it takes place, in, you know, entirely in this guy's apartment. Adaptation of a play. Right, it's an adaptation of a play, right? It's like I said, like it's a one act. Right. And, uh, and it really kind of really gets all these really, new, these sort of nuances of the way first dates bad first dates go these sort of awkward pauses you know the way that people try to kind of accommodate each other and and uh uh how they don't want to sort of offend each other and it's kind of you know it kind of gradually gets more and more real i guess but um but you know i think it's a testament to noonan's skill as a filmmaker that he's able to bring that world uh to life as a movie and not just simply as a film play I mean, it seems like uh, film plays make often make particularly good claustrophobic movies. I mean, you get... Was Lifeboat based on a play? I can't remember. Uh, no, it was actually based on... It was Hitchcock's idea, and then it was turned into a story by John Steinbeck and then turned into a screenplay by others. Gotcha. It seems very play-friendly, though. And then you have things like Your Twelve Angry Men, Your Wait Until Dark, Sleuth, um, just anything that's made to be set on a single set can sort of translate into a movie that feels very, very limited because we're not used to in movies being stuck in that small an area. I mean, one of the things I think is is neat about Buried, Scott was saying that, you know, uh, filmmaking rigor is really important in making these films, but I think also, like, narrative, finding the narrative exploitation of a claustrophobic situation is part of what makes a, a good claustrophobic film as opposed to just a competent one. And one of the things that amazed me most about Buried was the way the narrative kept finding new things to do with a man who's stuck inside a coffin. You know, the camera is stuck in there with him. There's there's so little like movement that's possible. There's so little forward narrative movement that's possible. And everything that happens in that film happens, you know, via voices and, and interaction with the space. Is that because uh, telemarketers keep calling him up? <laughs> And then the whole film is just about him like, crap, I need to emerge from this coffin. How can I, I hang up? I can't, I can't reach my phone. Such an interesting, because I haven't seen coffin. it. I'm, I'm just guessing. Well, how so. would you contrast that with something like 127 Hours, which in my view cheated a little too much. In, oh, yeah. In giving you, Definitely. You know, I, I would have just wanted the guy <laughs> stuck in the rock for 90 minutes and not and have nothing else. But, but the movie kind of breaks away from that, I think, too much, and you lose some of the intensity of that situation. Keith, what do you have to say about that? Um, yeah, I, I think that can be an issue. But I was, I was also thinking about, I'm, this might be a slightly different definition, not to keep messing, sidetracking us, but I was thinking about the movie Last Days, the Gus Van Sant uh, um, biopic of Last Days of Kurt Cobain, although he's called somebody else, um, and how the, that... And Eddie that, Vedder, confusingly enough. In that film, how uh, the, the character's uh, house becomes like his entire world, and there's that one sequence where, if I'm remembering the film correctly, there's only one sequence where he kind of ventures outside, and he realizes that that he kind of doesn't fit into this world, the outside world at all anymore. He just wants to stay home and and uh, kill himself. And and uh, uh, to me, that's sort of a profound sense of, of claustrophobia, not just as a physical space, but as a, as a, a psychological condition. You know what that uh, brings up for me more than anything is the trial, which is not really particularly oh, yeah. bound at all, like into one physical space. But it's, I mean, it's such a claustrophobic movie because of the psychology of the piece. Mm. You know, just that sense of being trapped emotionally or can be more profound than being trapped physically. But for me, what makes a really good claustrophobic movie is the the sensation of being physically trapped. I mean, the, the Descent is one of the most tense horror movies I've seen in years, just because it, it plays to that setting so much. So I love a good, like, psychologically trapped film, like uh, Bunny Lake is Missing, um, you know, flight plan kind of updated it and wasn't very good in that regard. But that sense of being like trapped in your own head or trapped in your in your 
psyche, like a repulsion, something like that. Yeah, actually, that's the first like, one that came to actually, mind when like, you mentioned. Yeah, something like Red Eye is actually a good example. Uh, the Wes Craven film from a while ago of yeah of just kind of being set you know primarily on an airplane and finding all sorts of horror uh, and claustrophobia within within that context. That kind of does the speed thing though, where it sets up this this uh, amazing claustrophobic premise, and then in the last third of it is a totally different movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you and here's your out, guys. Yeah, Kate, I, you don't I, want you to feel it's too claustrophobic. I wanted to mention a couple of things uh, because it's sort of a mix of uh, documentary and fiction. Uh, these uh, these last two Jafar Panahi movies, uh, this is not a film, oh. and Closed Curtain uh, are both films that were made under uh, house arrest. You know, it's called This Is Not a Film. He's not allowed to make it make movies. Uh, so you get this picture of what what life is like with him, you know, under house arrest. But then he, he actually uh, blocks out a scene from this movie that he'll never get a chance to make and it's it's uh it's fascinating and of course you get a you get a sense of his confinement and also about how his imagination you know allows him to you know escape to some degree and poignantly not escape uh um uh, his uh, situation so uh i really like that one a lot well let's close with a couple of different things one is i'm curious whether you guys have uh particularly favorite claustrophobia movies like anything near and dear to your heart especially if it's something we haven't already mentioned that's uh maybe a little more off the beaten track well yeah i have i have plenty uh but but one i wanted to mention uh was a film is a film called the bitter tears of petra von kant which is a film by uh fassbender a pretty early uh movie about uh you know it's it's about this love triangle between a fashion designer the, the assistant who's sort of obsessed with her and then a a model who comes in or would-be model who the fashion designer takes an interest in etc uh it takes place almost in, i think entirely in one location shot by michael ballhouse in red just in a very intense disturbing red and it's shot over like just a series of like five or six long scenes and i i do you know it's been a very long time since i've seen that film but it's but the the claustrophobia of it is what made the deepest impression on me and i um, and i think you know i think it's worth you know seeking out that sounds it. fascinating yeah. Nathan? Uh, for some reason, when I'm thinking about this, and this is not an obscure movie necessarily, but talking about you know the different ways you cause claustrophobia made me think a lot about long takes, and a lot of times long takes can be used to you know sort of create, uh, take out any kind of uh, escape any the audience might have. So I think rope. Uh, as an example oh, of a sure. movie that is unusually claustrophobic for a number of different reasons, it definitely makes you feel uh, everything that Alfred Hitchcock makes you want to feel at any given moment. This is a film I recommended back when we did our underrated horror films, but uh, Pontypool, the Canadian zombie film that's set entirely in an underground, uh, literally underground radio station um, where um, all the evidence, you, you don't see much of the outside world. Uh, except for the, at the very beginning of the film, and 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 sort of the these mounting horrible situation creeps in, visit you know via a handful of visitors, and then news reports, and then kind of shadows outside. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's quite it's quite good. Hmm. There are a couple I'd like to rec- recommend. One is um, 2002's Below, which uh, is directed by David Toey, who also did Pitch Black. Um, and Darren Aronofsky was actually one of the writers. It's sort of a haunted submarine film, although certain aspects of it are left up to interpretation. Um, it's a it's no Das Boot. Like uh, let me just say flat out that if you're if you're only going to be able to tolerate one claustrophobic submarine movie in your life, Das Boot is the one. But if you're looking for uh, a little more of that with a little more uh, action. Wait, more action than Das Boot? Did I really also say that? Also, less time than Das Boot. There you go. If you're looking, if you're looking to spend less of your life <laughs> invested into being claustrophobic, um, it's a really tense and really interesting film. The other is this weird little film I ran across on Netflix called Exam. It's uh, streaming on that Netflix last, last I checked, and it's kind of got the small scale feeling of uh, you know somebody had a room and a camera and some actors and that's all. Um, but ba- basically, the premise is that a bunch of people are in a room taking a test, one of them will pass and win a lucrative uh, position, which is never explained, which everybody in the room desperately needs. They all sit down to take the test. The uh, person giving the test leaves, and they all turn over the papers, and they're all blank. And everything that follows uh, in the movie follows from that premise of people trapped in a room together, all desperately wanting the same thing and not knowing what the next steps are, and it's exactly as tense as you would imagine. 
Sounds intriguing. It's a really, really cool movie. But it brings us to kind of the last thing that I I wanted to talk about, which is uh, the claustrophobic movie is a really, really good way to save money. I mean, you can do it on a big scale. You can you can make Alien, uh, but you can also make Wait Until Dark. You know, if you've got a camera and a couple of actors in a room and that's it, it's a really good way for starting filmmakers to to kind of uh, work with narrative and work with tension and work with very, very limited resources. And I'm curious whether that's something that you've seen a lot in claustrophobic movies. I mean, that definitely sounds like Roger Corman's uh, whole working philosophy very early in his career. Kind of the idea was like, we have a set. We have it for 28 hours. Like, you're an incredibly smart young person. Like, that's all you have. Make something wonderful happen. And you have stuff like, you know, Little Shop of Horrors uh, came out of that, that whole kind of aesthetic. And it's, it's kind of a wonderful thing. Well, it's like a bottle episode for TV, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, <laughs> Genevieve was showing me bottle episode. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, uh, I think I probably, and again, there's, there's plenty of cheats here, but Reservoir Dogs is certainly an example mm, yeah. of an early film, somebody just kind of testing their, their metal on, on a budget. And, and uh, you know, a lot of that takes place in that sort of warehouse space um you know and you can kind of you know and i guess it's again it's the whole necessity is the mother of invention thing if you're if you're if you're given a limited budget and limited locations you really have to invent within a a pretty disciplined space and and that can lead to a lot of revelations eraser has another example too. assault on uh, precinct 13 that's another great example of you know a young filmmaker very little resources one set making something wonderful happen a saw for that matter I hadn't really thought about it but that's another example of people making the the best advantage of one space in a way a a filmmaker being trapped within budget limitations can lead to that feeling of being trapped within a within a room and having to make a film based on what's at hand all right guys well I think we've explored that topic thoroughly Uh, as a reward you are actually allowed to leave the room now the door will be opening momentarily thanks a lot thank you back to our game segment Double Vision where we examine two very similar movies and ask contestants to determine which awkward unfortunate detail came from which film. This week we're looking at two 1998 blockbusters about giant rogue comets on collision courses with Earth where if they hit the planet's surface they'll almost certainly end all life. Deep Impact beat Michael Bay's Armageddon to the screen by a few months but Armageddon was still the bigger hit and it became the Criterion Collection's most improbable inductee. We'll go round robin on this one, with competitors Keith Phipps, Matt Singer, and Genevieve Kosky taking turns answering questions. This is not a buzz-in game, so the Scott Tobias rule with points docked for incorrect answers is not in effect. And this time around, there were so many great details that every question is something that happens in one of the movies or both. The answer will never be neither. Keith, we're going to start with you. Uh, which one of these two movies has an ending centering on a dramatic let's draw straws to see who has to stay behind and die sequence at the end? It's been a while for both of them, and I'm, but I'm going to say it's Armageddon. It is actually both movies. Oh, for, that's, is that an option? It is. I, I just said. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was neither. <laughs> All right. Is, neither is not an option. You get oh. no points whatsoever for uh, answering the next question, <laughs> but you do get to regain your lost honor for not listening to the Sure, sure. Which of the two movies uh, reverses the dramatic Let's Draw Straws ending by having a long straw drawer trade place with a short straw drawer? That's Armageddon. No, it's both of them. <laughs> Which, for extra drama, has the long straw drawer not tell the short straw drawer they're going to take pl- that they're going to change places with them, just attack and sabotage them to communicate what's going to happen? I'm going to get it right this time. What is it? No, it's both of them. <laughs> it is both of them. Wow, that's uh, that's my longest question, and we've already gotten to it. So. A three-parter. It is a three-parter, but the, the important part was the first part, which you got wrong. It may be, that may suggest, then, that Armageddon is the more memorable of the two movies. I wonder if these, the, rest of, the rest of this quiz will bear that out. <laughs> we'll find out. Genevieve, which film's creepy romantic relationship involves a man chasing his daughter's boyfriend around, repeatedly shooting at him with a shotgun because he can't stand the idea that someone has deflowered his little girl? Pretty sure that's Armageddon. That is Armageddon. You get a point. Yay. For no extra credit whatsoever. it is very memorable. (laughs) (laughs) For no extra credit whatsoever. Which film's creepy romantic relationship features a man willingly marrying off his 14-year-old daughter (laughs) in order to secure a spot in a protected bunker? (laughs) Oh, uh... I, that's got to be a deep impact, it right? It is deep impact. You don't get an extra point wow. for that, but you do get all of the glory in the world. Do I get a place in the bunker? <laughs> you have to marry a 14-year-old girl. Sorry. Matt. Yes. Which features the discoverer of the meteor being told that his sudden fame will result in him getting laid more often than anyone else in his class? 
Uh, I'm going to say Deep Impact. You are correct. Have you seen this recently? Uh, if by recently you mean never, then <laughs> <laughs> recently. Uh, all right, then. Keith, which of the two movies features a military man bragging that NASA has better rockets than the coyote from the Roadrunner cartoons? Uh, I think that's Armageddon. That is Armageddon. You get the point. We, we know these movies really well. Uh, really frighteningly well. Well, we'll see if that goes for all of the questions. Genevieve, which of the two movies features one of the astronauts on the mission to blow up the meteor emotionally and very symbolically reading Moby Dick to one of his fellow astronauts? Armageddon? <laughs> no, that's Deep Impact. Damn it. That is, in fact, uh, Robert Duvall uh, reading reading his one of his favorite books to an astronaut who has tragically lost his sight in I didn't a sight-losing even remember. Accident. I didn't even remember that there were astronauts in Deep Impact. <laughs> oh, both of these movies, we should we should clarify. Both of these movies not just don't just feature a comet becoming a meteor that's going to destroy the Earth. They both feature a bunch of astronauts leaving the Earth to go to the uh, meteor, dig a hole in it, plant a bunch of nukes in it, and blow it up. See, I thought I had a, a line on how to, how to win this, but I know nothing, apparently. <laughs> you, you know nothing, John. Now, okay, Matt. Which of the two movies features a character telling a president that NASA didn't detect the incoming meteor earlier because, quote, our object collision budget is roughly a million dollars. That allows us to track about three percent of the sky. And begging your pardon, sir, it's a big ass sky. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna say Armageddon. You are correct. Yes. And it's a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom. <laughs> Specifically, a race to the top where the incoming meteor is. Keith. Which of the two films celebrates the blasting of the comet by showing kids running around in the heartland in slow motion, admiringly waving toy versions of the space shuttle? I think that's Armageddon. You are correct. Yeah. It seems more of a Michael Bay. It is a very Michael did. Bay thing. It's... Than a more Michael Bay moment than whoever directed even that. <laughs> oh, ow. name is escaping me. Oh, geez. Well, then I guess uh, you won't have a cheat on one of the later ones in the, uh, in the <laughs> gaming cup. Genevieve, which one of the two movies entirely skips an explosive confrontation between a series of Titan missiles and the comet and just gives one character speech explaining that, oh, by the way, our missile barrage failed? Oh, um, that sounds like uh, something Deep Impact would do. It does sound like something Deep Impact <laughs> would do. Mimi me, me Leader. <laughs> Very good. You don't get an extra it came, point. It came to me. I didn't even look it up. I, I just watched the. I just rewatched the ER episode that she directed, so that must be why I remembered it. That's really good. That's the the, oh, the one with the pregnancy. Yeah. Oh my God, that episode. All right. Okay, we're doing pretty good here. With uh, we've got Keith at three, and Matt and Genevieve tied at two. Anybody could still take this and take it all the way up to the comet that's about to destroy the Earth. Matt. Which film features the graphic destruction of downtown Manhattan with a shot in particular fo focusing on the destruction of the World Trade Center's Twin Towers? I'm going to say Deep Impact. Actually, both of them do. Uh, uh, Armageddon does it at the beginning. Deep Impact does it at the end. But they, they both destroy New York because it's not a disaster film until you've destroyed New York. Nuts. All right, Keith. Which of the two films has a reporter getting a hint about a government reaction to an extinction-level event mistakes the initials E-L-E for the name Ellie, and thinks she stumbled across proof that the president has a secret mistress. Huh. I was going to say both, but then it got very specific there. So I think it's, I think that is deep impact. It is deep impact, but, you know, specificity is not necessarily proof that it's one or the other, yeah, that's true. given the ridiculousness of the uh, straw-drawing <laughs> situation. Genevieve, which film, according to the IMDb, is used as a training exercise at NASA, where oh. managers are challenged to identify the more than 160 scientific errors in the film? <laughs> I was, I was, I was going to say, I really hope neither is an option here, but uh, the, the last part of that question uh, redeemed it a little. Um, <clears throat> Armageddon. It, it is, Yay. in fact, Armageddon. I really, I, I hope that somewhere out there a list of those errors is published, but I guess that would make it a little more difficult to use as a training exercise. <laughs> was it only 160 errors? Is that uh, what you said? 168 so far, according to the trivia, though it's not really clear when that trivia was posted. If it was 10 years ago, they may be up to 300 by now. Oh, that might make it the most accurate Michael Bay movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> They actually had to stop doing the Kobayashi Maru after Star Trek II came out. <laughs> Wow. Okay, that's some, that's some deep cut nerdery there. And I know exactly what you mean, which makes me a deep cut nerd too. All right, Matt, you're trailing at two to Keith's four and Genevieve's three. Let's see if you can catch up. 
Which of the two films features an astronaut on the comet exploding mission exchanging these lines with his wife via NASA uplink? You promised me you keep on doing your church thing, and I'll be there right next to you, haunting you. You better come back and haunt me. I love you. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say Deep Impact again. You are correct. That is Deep Impact. <laughs> wow. I got to see this movie. <laughs> I'm officially sold. Wow. I okay, okay, so just out of curiosity, if you haven't seen the movie, why did you go for that one uh, with the cheesy dialogue over Armageddon, which also has plenty of cheesy dialogue? Yeah, I just figured something that ridiculous I would have vaguely remembered, and it didn't sound familiar at all. Fair and enough. also isn't, what's his name? Oh, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to give any clues to my competitors. Never mind. I'm going to keep that close to my vest. <laughs> Damn it. All right, Keith. <laughs> oh, I love this one. Okay, which of the two movies features the line, the fate of the planet is in the hands of a bunch of retards I wouldn't trust with a potato gun? <laughs> uh, I mean, my 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 division here is basically if it sounds like overly reverent and like there'd be like really um, sort of, uh, you know, Copeland-esque music playing in the background, then it's Deep Impact. And then uh, if it sounds really obnoxious, it's Armageddon. So I'm going to say Armageddon. Wow, that rule may bear you out. It is, in fact, Armageddon. <laughs> All right, we're coming down to the last few questions here. Is it still anybody's game, or is it, as always, Keith's game? Mm. Keith is at five. I lost Matt, the last is it, one. Matt and Genevieve is, are both at three. Let's see if you guys can catch up. Genevieve, which of the two films features an astronomer character dying in a completely senseless accident that has no bearing on the plot and seems to exist only to provide an extra explosion and incidentally to mirror the real-life death of an actual prominent astronaut? Both? <laughs> I wish that was true, ah. actually. It was a little bit of a trick question uh, because of, of the words uh, exist only to provide an extra explosion, which sounds very Michael Bay-y, but it's actually Deep Impact, oh. which features an astronomer character being unable to email something, so he puts it on a disc and rushes it someplace in his Jeep, but crashes the Jeep and dies. <laughs> <sighs> was it a floppy disk? I, I, if I remember, well, it definitely says floppy disk, but I think it was one of the like the hard ones as opposed to the five and a half inch. Uh, a zip disk. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're not going to go into the history of disks here. But uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty sad uh, technical failure that leads to, to horrible, horrible death. Okay, Matt, which of these two films features a band being blown out into space by an exploding gas pocket on the heated up surface of the comet? Hmm, I'm going to say Armageddon. Actually, both of them do. Oh, no. The only difference is in Armageddon, the uh, the man is reeled back in by being struck by a piece of flying debris, <laughs> and he survives. <laughs> but it does actually happen in both films. Damn you exploding gas pockets. <laughs> Your old nemesis My is old arch nemesis. <laughs> okay, final round. Keith has won this one at five. Uh, Matt and Genevieve still stuck at three, but we can at least find out um, if you can close the gap just a little bit more and walk away what, with the right stuff. We can find out which one of us is a deep impact to Keith's Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a compliment, Keith. <laughs> Is it? I don't, it really, it really, really right. isn't. Having recently watched both of these films for the first time, it's just not. All right, Keith. One of the two directors of these films said in an interview that this was the worst movie they ever made, and they would like to reshoot the entire third act. Which one? Probably Bay. It's probably Michael Bay. Director it was actually Michael yeah. Bay and Armageddon. He uh, he claimed that he was stuck with only sixteen weeks to shoot, and yeah. the movie just wasn't all that he wanted it to be. Sixteen <laughs> weeks and what? Three hundred million dollars and. Lord, oh, he, I, I feel, I, he could have blown up a real live comet in space for the money he spent making this movie. Out. But you know, actually, I, I do know this, that in Bad Boys, he wanted an explosion that the studio wouldn't pay for, so he paid for it out of pocket. So you had to respect, <laughs> you had to respect that commitment. All right, Genevieve, which one of these films has one of the adult protagonists reacting to the news of the descending comet by tearfully demanding that her senior citizen father abandon his new wife and get back together with the protagonist's mother? Yee. Uh, deep impact. You are correct. Woo! Still in this not really kind of gap closed. All right, Matt. For uh, in order to save your honor and prove that you do not like the stars of Armageddon have the wrong stuff, <laughs> here's your final question: In which of these two films does the president say uh, in a news conference in respect to the meteor that is about to crash down on everybody's heads that he believes that God hears all prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. I'm going to say 
Deep Impact. You are correct. Oh. Following the Keith Phipps rule as to uh, how to determine which of these films yeah. is... Uh, there's is a yes. little bit of Morgan Freeman inflection in Tasha's delivery. <laughs> yes. That's, I, could, I, I could hear it. I could hear I've it. I've always thought of myself as sounding a lot <laughs> like Morgan Freeman. Well, I want to thank you guys for playing, and I want to thank you even more for saying I sound like Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I look forward to the millions of dollars in voiceover work that will be coming my way, but even more so, I look forward to never having to watch these two films again. Thanks, guys. And now it's time for the Blitzkrieg recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell, where we let two people recommend films or film-related culture, but give them only 30 seconds on the clock to say whatever they have to say. For an added level of competition, we make them go head-to-head, because who has time to watch more than one recommended movie? This time around, making her 30 Seconds to Sell debut, we have Genevieve Kosky going up against 30 Seconds vet Nathan Raven, who has at least 240 seconds of selling under his belt already. <laughs> Ready to go, Genevieve? Mm-hmm. You have 30 seconds. Let's hear it. This past weekend, I had the unusual experience of watching Planet of the Apes with someone who somehow, through some unimaginable set of circumstances, did not know one of the biggest twists in movie history and was completely bowled over by the film's final moments. It was absolutely delightful to experience the movie through his eyes and caused me to look at it in a whole new way as we were watching it. So this week, I'm recommending having someone in your life who isn't a movie buff, who may not be as well-versed in the sort of pop culture movie trivia we consider general knowledge, and share movies with them that you've already seen. It could be a fun and interesting new lens through which to view films you thought you had that may, you may have thought had nothing new to offer. Merp. Ooh, just a few too many words there with the, the minor bobble. But uh, clear thought, interesting recommendation. Find somebody who knows nothing about film and show them <laughs> film. <laughs> I don't know anybody who doesn't know anything about film. That was a Scott, Scott Tobi- Tobiasian uh, recommendation. That was. Well, you know, you, you weren't recommending that uh, not to like things or to change the course of cinematic history uh, retroactively. So a little less Scotty than it could have been. But uh, I like it. Nathan, you think you're up to uh, topping her on that? I, I am not up to topping her, but I will give it the old college try. All right. Let's hear it. I will mm, let it play. Go. Okay. The uh, thing that I'm going to recommend uh, in this entry is the motion picture entitled uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, the Wes Anderson stop animated movie from a few years back, which is his only literary adaptation so far, probably ever. Uh, he uh, adapted Roald Dahl work. I know a uh, uh, book that is particularly uh, important to you and it felt like he did an absolutely spectacular job uh, there's this homemade quality to it you can it breathe it lives it is an absolutely exceptional thing that you should see wow you came in with more than that a was second terrible. left to go yeah, yeah, yeah. like I, I feel like you I, should I, th- be... I think I think we've got uh, we've got a, a rookie champion uh, this it's one out. no 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 you should, yeah. be, you, should always, you should be banking your extra seconds I mean technically uh, Genevieve gets points off for, for going at least to maybe three words over but that's i think that was a great showing on both of your parts um i do feel like there's a little pandering to the the judge here because uh, fantastic (laughs) mr fox it was one of my my favorite all-time uh all-time things so i'm gonna give it to genevieve because she she needs a win to keep coming back and doing this and because i really like the idea of of seeking out people who have lived who have grown up in plato's cave find hermits subject them to art this is really just my way of sharing the fact that i found someone who doesn't know how planet of the apes ends (laughs) you're really just mocking the people you know aren't you i I but it's one of tim burton's best loved films that's so weird. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, now you can punish that person by showing them that film. Congratulations on your win. Uh, you Yay. now have a, a 30 seconds trophy of your very own. And Nathan, uh, good job, and we hope you'll keep coming back. Oh, thank you. I will. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That about does it for episode 14 of the Dissolve podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with our 15th podcast, at which point I believe it's traditional to give us a gift of crystal. In the meantime, you can experience the Dissolve on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, as well as in website form at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. If you want to talk to our other podcast host, Scott Tobias, about his astonishing failure to bring funny games into the claustrophobic movie section, you can find him on Twitter as Scott, two T's, underscore, Tobias. Thanks for listening.